Welcome Royal Lamont of Hitachi Rail to the Procurement Heads big interview series. It's a pleasure having you. Thanks, it's great to have the opportunity to talk to you. Ben, how did you get into procurement? So I was lucky enough to come into procurement almost by accident. I applied for BP's graduate scheme in 1999 and was lucky enough to join the procurement team in the North Sea. At that time, the North Sea was absolutely booming. and. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very lucky um, first choice of uh, kind of my first step in the, the career ladder. I'd done some procurement, I'd done a procurement elective at university uh, as part of my honours year and really loved it. Um, and I think my passion for it has grown from there. And so the, I love the supplier interface, I love working with the business, I love the technical interface, and now I'm lucky enough to find myself in the customer interface as well. So, you know, it's a great career, absolutely fabulous place to be. Well, are you most passionate about when it comes to procurement? At the moment, there's really there's a, some couple of things that really got me charged up. The, the, the scope three emissions piece around sustainability is the, the kind of the next area that this, the, this function doesn't need to solve itself, it's got to lead its businesses to help understand and then form the plan on how we work with the supply chain to, to improve and remove and carbon as we go forward. So I, I love that, you know, I, you know, when I start to look into our supply base, we have about 12,000 suppliers, everything from the FM supplier here for our office in London to the engine supplier that I met yesterday, um, you know, who are looking at batteries and you know, the challenges there are very different, but the procurement team has a massive role to play to make sure that we understand what the opportunities are and make sure we get after those opportunities. Um, so yeah, that's that's one piece. I think the other piece for me that I love is the fact that I get to go into factories to get you know, to walk the line, to see how the you know, to see how our you know our um, goods and services are coming together, to do the first article inspection, and um, you know there's just such a range of things you can get involved in in this profession. Uh, that's why I love it. That's why I'm here. What are the challenges that you and your team are currently facing? I think some of the common challenges that you know any supply chain team in a manufacturing business are going to be going to be faced with. So we are we're still making sure that our operations are COVID safe. We're still making sure that our supply chains are managing COVID. You know, and then making sure where we have got um, incidents that we need to help the supply chain with that we do that that we communicate that to our manufacturing locations and ultimately to our customers. So that kind of backwards and forwards is is very real just now. Brexit is still there, okay. Uh, so sort of Brexit Mark Two, the, the second version of the of it is around us. You know, uh, new HMRC um, obligations which came into force in January. You know, we're, we're now in anger using the processes and tools that we put in place about eighteen months ago to, to deal with that. And so, um, um, just mm -hmm. a quick follow yeah. up on that question. It's quite something mm -hmm. that's quite dear to my heart yeah. in terms of the getting materials, etc., yep. through the mm -hmm. um, customs process, etc. Yep. Did you have to change quite a lot? Yeah, we, we really that? took a lot. We took a long look at that because you know, the legacy of the, the rail business unit, you know, we, we grew up in Japan, right? So we were building, you know, the, the, the high speed Shinkansen for the first Tokyo Olympics in 64. That's really, you know, before that we were building locomotives, but for the domestic market. and. You know, HS1, which was our first UK project for the Olympics in 2012, a lot of the componentry was coming from Japan. You know, and even with the new fleets that we have in operation in the UK, we still have a long supply chain for some systems going back to Japan. And you know, so with that, 
reliance in the business, we, we took a long look at which routes do we bring goods and services in from. And we took a very deliberate strategy to avoid Dover and the Kent Corridor. We're lucky in that our factory is in, in, in uh, County Durham and a lot of our kind of operational hubs are up and down the country. So coming in through a different angle was a, a different port was an opportunity for us. And we also took the opportunity to find some bonded warehouses, which meant we could bypass the court congestion, uh, the port congestion, and, and do the customs clearance within our within our own um, or within third-party facilities. We did that. Then, of course, you know, we didn't have to do a lot of the, the, the clearance procedures um, on the um, on the border because they weren't there. So we've built up the team, we've put in place the teams, uh, the team, the systems, the processes. Um, and now the customs checks that we need to do. So it's been a long piece of work, 24, you know, 30 months of work, but it's, it's paid dividends. Well, I guess what are your team doing currently and what's the organisation doing currently with regards yeah. to that sustainability phase? We've been really public on where we want to be, right? So carbon neutral by 2050, right? Uh, across the Hitachi group. Um, and, you know, we're acting on that now. So we reduced our CO2 footprint by 30% last year. We've increased our, the reuse of water and we've reduced the energy intensity of our facilities, all of which is in the, the report we just published. The role that my team are playing is very much to look at scope three. Okay, So within the organisation of a CSR committee, which has our COOs on it, myself, CHRO and the head of sustainability and environment. And across that group, we have working groups sitting underneath. And one of those working groups is on scope one, scope two and scope three. So my supplier management team have been working quite closely with Ecovaris. We've talked a lot about that publicly. Um, and we're at the point of taking through you know, our top 250 suppliers through the Ecovaris registration process. You know, so you know, if any of my suppliers are watching this, it's really important that you do that because it helps to give us the insight to how you're performing. The next step after that is to have a heat map of the supply chain. Okay, so my philosophy here is I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that many of my suppliers are engaged on this topic already. Okay, so they're actively managing the scope one and the scope two emissions. So that helps me because my supplier scope one and two are my scope three. But ultimately where I'm going to get to in the next six months is to know where the hotspots are and to know in detail where the hotspots are. So my guts tell me I'm making a train from aluminium. The extraction and refining of aluminium is going to be a challenge that we have to take on. And the question is, am I going to take that on as Hitachi on its own? Am I going to look to do it as a real industry initiative, which I'm talking a little bit with Network Rail, that might be something to look at. Or do I want to approach Boeing and Airbus? Because they have the same, you know, they all have aluminium tubes. They just happen to make airplanes from them and not make trains. So that's where we're going on that. Um, and I think the really positive thing is there's some great technology out there that really can make you take big jumps quickly and quite effectively. Um, and I, the, the view I have is the, the more the supply chain engages in that, the more transparent we all are, the quicker we get to solving the really difficult challenges, whilst just the shift that's happening in society in general help us address a lot of the, 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 the easier to get carbon uh, intensive processes that we have around us, like lighting, like energy. What's the biggest risk you've taken? I've taken a couple actually. I think luckily they've all paid off. One was leaving leaving BP to join Accenture. So I left a very um, 
stable business environment in the north, you know, based in Aberdeen, global travel, and came out from that into Accenture after I think I've probably been with BP about five years, and the change was huge. You know, so I went from being part of a business to being in an advisory role, having to help sell, having to really um, work as part of big integrated teams. And uh, that was a big shift from where I'd been. And I think I was probably a bit naive and didn't fully understand the, the shift I was making. So for anybody that's kind of new or making a second or third job move, I really just take a minute and think about what does it mean, not just for my job and not for my future career, but for my personal life. You know? And what does it mean, you know, where am I going to be in three years um, after having taken this risk and what am, I, what am I getting out of it? I was really lucky that I got some great skills out of that time with Accenture, you know, learn how to take data, present it, talk to people, plan, manage, um, which I probably would have got, but it would have taken me longer. So I think I, you know, that came back quite well. And then the second one is the shift out of, out of oil and gas and, and into rail. And again, it was a big personal challenge to move from one heavy engineering environment to another, but a really big change in product. You know, very few people phone you up and say, I've just had a great litre of petrol, thank you very much. I have had suppliers phone me up and say, I've just come off one of your new trains. It's amazing. Um, and I think you know, the shift into rail has given me that, that kind of real, um, a real link to a product that I've invested in. Um, and uh, again, it's been a great personal challenge to you know, move into the CPO role for the first time, take on a big function, global responsibility, uh, and I've, uh, I've really enjoyed it. What do you think are the current procurement trends, hot topics? And what emerging roles do you think we'll see in procurement as a result? I think the CPO role is shifting really quickly, right? And um, you know, two things, pandemic, Brexit, we've just been, there's been so much more emphasis on what's happening in the supply chain. And I think many CEOs are now looking at the CPO or chief supply chain officer role and thinking, yep, I can see the value there. I can see the risk protection. I can see the risk mitigation that, that, that this part of the function does. Um, you know, we're going to go into, a, or we're in an inflationary cycle. So there's still the P&L protection that, that the function's always offered, but I think we need to offer it in a much more um, integrated way. Right, so you know, I talked a bit about sustainability. You know, can we drive a more efficient, effective infrastructure within the business and therefore reduce our exposure to, to energy? The supplier management role is becoming more and more important. It kind of it's knitting together. You know, what are the what's the supply base we want to be using? What's the performance of that supply base? How do I keep that supply base qualified? With understanding what you know, what's the environmental impact of that supply chain? how do we link together what engineering needs and what the customer needs and what the supply base can do and I think the data that that can generate now is becoming really really important and um, I don't think it's really acceptable anymore to not understand where your supply chain is, is or isn't performing on the kind of ethical the ethical point the financial point and then the actual business delivery point and that all comes together in that supply management role. Talking about the trends and hot topics within procurement, something I've seen a lot more recently is uh, social value. Yeah, yeah. What, what are your thoughts? A lot of the, a lot of businesses are wrestling with that. You know, what's the you know not just the return to the share, the, the shareholder or the stakeholder, but also return back to um, back to 
our environment or our society. For us as a, as a function, then, if that's something our business is wrestling with, we'd better be trying to understand what the market and our supply chains think about that. I'm not sure we're really getting to the bottom of that yet. Um, and I think a lot of the shifts you see around the business models, acquisitions that are happening is because a lot of companies are really oscillating uh, around where to go with that one. So, one to watch. What skills do you consider essential to be a procurement leader? Great question. I did a careers evening at my son's school on Monday this week and somebody asked me exactly that question, a really bright 17 year old, which is pretty scary. Um, you know, at, at the top of the function, there was a great Harvard Business Review article called the T-shaped leader. Right? So it's a, a leader with deep functional capability, but with the ability to reach across to all the other functions. Right? So you know, as a CPU or a, a procurement director, you've got to be able to talk really you know, in a linked up way with your CFO and your CEO. Right? You need to be able to understand the CHRO's agenda, and you must be able to be um, absolutely intimate with a chief supply chain officer if you have one and this chief operating officer if that's how your business is set up so that ability to represent your function but understand the key principles of all the other functions around your business are absolutely essential if it was to step kind of to the absolute other end of the, the, the spectrum the new talent that are coming into the function i see really strong commercial skills some great kind of almost business analyst type skills coming up and into the category management and sourcing space. And the, the, the people I see succeeding there come with great interpersonal skills and a comfort to go and talk to an engineer, knowing that they probably, well, they might not have an engineering background, but they're still happy to talk to that engineer and listen. Um, and that was the other bit of advice I gave to these kids, is like, you know, if you're early in your career, get the ability to listen the ability to synthesize it down and then come back with a couple of options and a recommendation. So that, that was great interpersonal skills, good EQ along with a nice IQ, it's a great place to be. So who had the most influence on your procurement and That's career, a great question. And why? Um, so the first ever boss I had was a gentleman called Granville Clutterbuck, BP, and he was our great leader because he was very humble. Right? Um, he was really approachable. He shared his experiences very freely, but he had exceedingly high standards. Um, and I, you know, I can remember him, you know, just taking me to task on stuff in a in a great way. Which you've really not thought about this. Could you go and think about it and come back? But he would also walk out at, at three o'clock and say, "Who wants a cup of tea?" and bring everybody a cup of tea and the tea. So he sticks in my memory very very much. And um, I think some of the some of the time in consulting a couple of clients that really stick in my memory and, and those clients were ones that decided to treat me as an individual as part of their team despite the fact I was working with an external company. I think that's you know a really important skill as well you know, to, to know how to build a team from different parts that gives you something that's better than the sum of those individual parts. That's a key key skill as well. What role have you and the procurement function played in enabling the company to face the pandemic? So obviously the main focus was sustaining the supply chain. So we started off using some pretty, some pretty good analysis we had through one of our spend analysis tools. We took the, the supplier massive data file and correlated it against the, the instances of COVID cases from recorded by the St. John Hoskins uh, Hospital. That gave us a really good 
first sort of cut of where our supply chain is most impacted. And it was a very powerful picture to show to the executive team. So we were reporting kind of a you know, 96% correlation between where our suppliers are based and where the, the cases of, of, of COVID were emerging. And that really got the focus of the business that we needed to be paying attention to our suppliers. From there, we went into you know, simple tracking, so key suppliers to key projects. Are they sustaining operations? Are they seeing tier one and tier two disruptions below them? And we started to report that on a regular basis along with the mitigation uh, the mitigation plans we put in place. So pretty core really, you know, when you're trying to manufacture trains, which I'm really proud that we continue to do during the pandemic, when you know, you were, you know, a lot of our manufacturing base is in Italy. So where things emerged, first of all, um, you know, so we, we did a really great job to be able to maintain the manufacture and the operation of our trains throughout. We played a role in obviously getting the PPE we needed um, and we continue to play a role to make sure that as things shift around us we're on top of where we've got supply risk and where we don't. Um, personally it was pretty difficult two years you know I ended up from, from being in Japan almost you know, once a month once every six weeks to not being on an airplane for two years running a global team from my, my spare room uh, in the west of London, which was not at all the way I was doing it before. Uh, it was a really difficult period and I think uh, everybody, I hope, has come through it, having learned a lot about how to operate globally remotely, but I'm really looking forward to not having to operate remotely globally anymore. Yeah, absolutely. With that in mind, what, what impact yeah. has it had on the organisation? Yeah, I think you know, our organisation is you know, 13,000 people, a large number in Japan, large number in Italy, large number in the UK and a, and a team that's ever growing in the US and we used to be together a lot and we've not been together as much as we would like to have been and I think that's led to some of the global thinking slowing down right and we need to get back into that because that's really it was a global business run and we've got to we've got to get back to that um, it's meant the opportunities to move around for our talent uh, and for our teams hasn't been there and again I think everybody's dying to get back to that we had um, an opening party this week um, for the UK office, kind of to welcome everybody back. And as a leadership team, we're really committed to doing more of that. So as we emerge out, we're ready to, you know, ready to get going again. And what has worked well, and what would you do differently with the benefit of hindsight? We were rightfully really cautious about coming back to the office, and I think with the benefit of hindsight, we might have, or I might have led slightly differently. I might have said actually guys we really just need to get into the office for this one task you know so as thing as the government restrictions calmed down the office was open but we were still quite hesitant to come together um, and some of the things we've been really clear on the planning and performance review is not something you can do by zoom right so we've been getting a team together in Italy in Japan and in the UK and then joining them up with with the technology we've now got um, We've got to keep that going and we've got to, we've got to grow that you know we're just finishing budgeting for this year we're in the middle of planning and again you know we're hopefully all going to find time to get together in, in italy to go through that uh, that kind of final review but that's been a really big miss um managing a supply chain when you can't go to your suppliers is very hard yeah and you have to rely a lot on trust a lot on being able to ask the right questions being able to get the right data um, and I think the, the availability of data in the supply chain has been quite clear that that's not been as well advanced as we'd liked it to have been. Um, but there's also been some big strides made in that area because of the pandemic. So.
What does equality, diversity and inclusion mean to you? That's a, a really hard question and I've seen loads of very good academic answers on it. I think when I, when I wrestle with it myself, it comes down to really three key things. One is a team that is made up of different points of view, okay? A team that listens to those different points of view and is trained to do the listening, but then that forms an opinion and executes a team, uh, executes the plan rather. And that's the, that for me is what true diversity and inclusion um, is, is really fun, founded around. Then there's the kind of lenses you can put on that around sex, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and those are equally as important. But I think the benefit of looking at it through that lens of have I got diverse opinions and experience around this table? Is the table listening to itself, pushing itself, and then forming a plan and getting after it is where the power of that diversity comes from for the benefit of the business. You know, I'm lucky in that my leadership team has got, you know, different nationalities, it's got different types of experiences, it probably doesn't have the gender mix that I would like to see and I think if you were to look at it that might be a, a source of criticism but as a leader of that team I've sat back and thought have I got the difference, different, difference experience, does the team listen to itself, does it form its plan, does it execute and I'm happy to defend that position because I see it coming through and I see the benefit of it for the business. So my next question was going to be, how important is it to you? It's obviously relatively important. I think it's really important. And it's important to me for a couple of personal reasons. You know, I was, I was really good at fencing as a kid. You know, fenced for Great Britain, fenced all over the world. But I fenced at a school that was a rugby school. And I didn't get the same credit for, for what I achieved in fencing because everybody thought rugby was the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and that's what fuels my passion around diversity. You know, I'm really involved in coaching um, a really outstanding organisation to make sure LGBTQ plus um, individuals have a, you know, a chance, if you like, or are helped to feel comfortable in what is a predominantly biased environment for them. And I think that as leaders, if we're not doing that, if we're not helping bring in different cultures, different points of view, we're stifling our organisation. So that, you know, that's why I'm passionate about it from a background and that's what I'm doing about it now. Do you think your EDI approach has changed at all as a result of the pandemic? I think it's really suffered, if I'm honest, because you know, you know if you subscribe to my view around it's about bringing people with different views together and being able to generate ideas and plans, that's been hard. Right, um, and we can see that that's coming back now because we're in the office more. I'm really keen to encourage it and bring it forward again. So it, it'll come back, but it's going to need more work from us. From a culture perspective, yeah, it's, it's more yeah. of a struggle. Now, yeah. I, mean, I think you know that's one of the great things about Hitachi that we've got this cultural mix of Japanese, European, American. It's a really heady mix, right? And one of the great challenges of my job is how do you harness that mix to get the business results we, we need. How do you engage your key stakeholders around sustainability? It's a conversation we're right in the middle of, and there's a couple of different areas it needs to come from. So you know, we talked about the sustainability of our own operations. So clearly we're talking to plant managers about what are the solutions to you know, giving you green energy. And so we've just signed a green energy contract for, for, for the UK with Scottish Power. That's been quite you know, in the press as we went to COP26. 
Um, we have the different conversation with the sales team. You know, so what's what's the, the request from our customers? You know, they want a more and more recyclable train. They want an energy efficient train. They want a, a, a train that generates much less noise. Um, so we need to then take those requirements, work with engineering, look to the market to find solutions to those problems. Um, and then you know we've got the, this kind of vision of being a mobility company rather than a train signaling and maintenance company. So how are we going to create that new product that means we can bring a mobility solution to cities that goes from ticketing to signaling to transportation to updates to your, your phone, ticketing on your phone. So there's a lot there's a lot to it and I think really it's about going to different stakeholders, listening to their needs, it's classic procurement stuff. Bring it back, see what the market can do. Can the market do it? No. Do we have to do it ourselves? Yeah. Do we need to go and partner with another company in a GEV? Getting into those conversations. And how are you measuring the success of your sustainability programme? So we've set out some really clear targets around energy, water, waste, um, and you know we're managing that on a yearly basis. We, you know, we publish the results on those. Um, and then for me, if it's in the supply chain, the measures I've got just now are around how much of my suppliers by spend do I understand the scope three emissions of. So the target I have is this year to understand 70% of my spend base of what their position is on scope three emissions. And I think next year that will move to probably 85% of spend and clear action plans on the hotspots that I talked about earlier on. And has there been anything you would have done differently with the benefit of hindsight? I think with the benefit of hindsight, I've got into conversations within the rail industry and within parallel industries more quickly. Because I think I could have picked up a lot of learning. And what I'm finding more and more is suppliers and competitors are really happy to share on this topic because it benefits us all. It's almost a right to play rather than a competitive advantage, I think. Um, and I'm being really keen you know, to talk to more companies about what we're doing and to learn from more companies on this topic. Are you aware of the Sustainable Procurement Pledge? I am, yep. I am. Good. And what does that mean to you? I think it's a useful construct, right? But me, as the CPO for Hatachi Rail, signing up to the Procurement Pledge must be followed up by action, okay? It's a hollow promise if that's all you do. And as a company, I think we're much more aligned to setting targets aligned to science-based um, measurement than potentially signing up to a procurement pledge. Okay, not that I don't believe in it, but we have our vehicle to drive change, which is you know, the obligations of each CEO to have a plan in place and that, to show that that plan is delivering is much more powerful, I think, and much more directive to the whole organisation than me signing up to the procurement pledge. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of it, but for Hitachi Rail, we have the, the, the change directive that we need to move forward. What are your visions for sustainability? I'd be very proud if I could see the clear link between the different functions within the business cooling in one direction. Okay, and that's really, you know, that's where I'd like to see us go as an organisation. I'd then be very, very encouraged to see the same level of dedication within the supply chain. And I'd really love to see the supply chain working down the tiers to help the smaller companies. You know, so when I, the biggest thing that keeps me awake at night is not the big 
you know, the big multinationals or nationals that, that we work with, it's when I go to the company making brackets for us in and around the factories, be that in, in the northeast or in Italy. And the challenge there is huge because they don't have the same resources that the larger companies do. They have an inordinate amount of pressure just to meet our requirements today. And actually, I think that's where we need to focus our help. And so my, you know, my vision would be where we have taken many steps together and we're capable of sharing that as a supply chain to make sure that the lower layers can benefit from it and that the decarbonisation flows down and through the supply chain. Changes have you seen in sustainability, and what have you noticed from those changes <laughs> over your entire procurement career? I've got a really clear memory of walking down a, um, a warehouse full of valves when I was up in the North Sea, and just the amount of paper, wood, pallets, packaging, the skips outside, um, and a lot of that was getting recycled. And now what I notice is that the packaging that we're seeing is much more thought through. You know, so when we buy seats, they're coming in stillages. Those stillages, you know, we empty the seats out and the stillages go back. Um, length of supply chain, you know, I can see, I talked earlier on about some systems that come from Japan. You know, the work we're thinking about now for some of the systems from Japan is repair and overhaul really needs to be done in country, right? It's good for the environment, it's good for our customers is good for the local economies we work with, right? And just seeing that grow, grow and grow is really where, where I'd love to see a much clearer picture. Uh, and I'm quite encouraged that that's the type of work that's now been taken on in the, in the other levels in the organisation. It's not just a, a conceptual conversation around the top table. What do you like doing in your spare time? So as a father of two, I spend an inordinate amount of time moving children from one place to the next. Uh, I'm very much enjoying the Six Nations, which obviously started off with a great result last weekend, and I'm looking forward to, to many more as we go on. Um, cooking's a passion, um, and just you know, trying to be a good dad and husband is a pretty much a full-time profession. Excellent. Any favourite books, films, sports? Obviously rugby. Uh, I think music. Well, music's a big passion. I really enjoy um, Don Lett's podcast on a Sunday. That's a, that's a favourite one of mine to listen to on the tube. Films. Let's see recently. The Courier I saw recently, which uh, a great Cold War thriller. So yeah, good stuff. And tell us an interesting fact about you. So I actually left left home when I was seventeen. So I, in Scotland, left sort of halfway through my final year, went to live in France for four months. So I've uh, got a very clear memory of leaving Waverley Station with my rucksack and uh, making my way down to Portsmouth and then coming off the ferry from Portsmouth in Caen. So I spent four months uh, living and kind of finding my way through life uh, as a 17 year old in France. That's quite a formative experience. So uh, I've got a very dear memory of that. Thank you very much Rory for being with me today. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And thank you for your insight and your knowledge. And um, we hope you will have the best uh, 2022. Thanks very much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.